Hi everyone, it's Mike Wong, and you're listening to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. Now, as part of the celebrations for reaching the 100th episode of Strange New Worlds, I solicited questions from you, the audience. And I initially intended to run a Q&A as part of my 100th episode. But as luck would have it, I got so many fabulous questions that I decided to make this Q&A its own standalone episode, episode 101. So here it is. First up, let's take a special question from Virtual TrekCon. Now, this was a fabulous online Star Trek convention in mid-July, put together by Ryan Husk, Sirach Lofton, who played Jake Sisko on DS9, Melissa Longo, and their team. And it featured a Science of Star Trek Q&A panel. Ryan and Sirach welcomed myself, Dr. Aaron McDonald, and Professor Mohammed Noor to the Aaron Eisenberg virtual stage, where we answered live questions from Trekkies around the world. Okay, here's a fun one. Um, they were all fun, by the way. <laughs> to, to the whole panel, which Star Trek series do you believe is the most scientifically accurate and the least scientifically accurate? We'll start with Dr. Aaron McDonald. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> I will say the personal preference of Voyager um, that I would say is the most scientifically accurate. I think that they did some really cool stuff with astrophysical phenomenon in Voyager. You know, they have the blink of an eye episode is great talking about gravity wells. Eye of the Needle is fantastic talking about how wormholes transfer space and time. Um, there are just some, some gems in astrophysics in Voyager. Um, you know, the least accurate, it's, it's kind of hard to, to name and shame the original series because it was over 50 years ago and we've learned so much since then. So I don't want to shame them too much. I mean, we can always joke about the, the creative license of some of the episodes that they took, but I think they've done it, you know, overall, when there's been an opportunity to insert science, all of the series have done a great job of that. Right. Yeah, I would I would second that, you know, just like Star Trek is so famous for being a cultural reflection of the time that it's being created in. It's also a reflection of the science that is known at the time. And so the original series is certainly the least scientifically accurate, just given how much we've discovered since then. Uh, so, you know, in Discovery, we had gravitational waves mentioned and things like that, which were only discovered a few years ago, thanks to the hard work of Aaron and her colleagues. And so I'd say that the most scientifically accurate Star Trek series will be the one that Aaron and Mohammed helped write. Yeah. <laughs> what an answer. Uh, that makes me so happy. I just got chills. <laughs> If you want to watch the entire panel or anything else that you missed at Virtual TrekCon, it's all on YouTube. Just follow the link in the show notes. For those of you who found out about Strange New Worlds from Virtual TrekCon, I want to extend you an extra warm welcome. You know, I was not expecting this invitation to be on the Science of Star Trek Q&A panel at Virtual TrekCon. It's been a dream of mine to one day give a Science of Star Trek talk at Star Trek Las Vegas, the largest Star Trek convention in the United States. But of course, STLV didn't happen this summer for obvious reasons, 
and Virtual TrekCon was our substitute. So it was such an honor to be invited on that panel and to appear alongside the actual Star Trek Universe science consultants, Dr. Aaron McDonald and Professor Muhammad Noor. What a thrill. So for those of you who watched or will watch the Star Trek science panel from Virtual TrekCon, just a warning that I did misspeak with regard to exoplanet statistics. So when I was asked about exoplanets, I accidentally said that we know of hundreds of Earth-sized planets in the habitable zones of other stars. In reality, we have discovered hundreds of Earth-sized planets, but only a dozen-ish of them lie in the habitable zone, which is that Goldilocks region around the star where our climate models say that liquid water could exist on the surfaces of Earth-like planets. But astronomers are discovering exoplanets by the bucket load these days, so we could be up to hundreds of habitable zone terrestrial planets not too far from now. Okay, on to your submitted questions. Benjamin Solish, an engineer at JPL, asks, How does time distortion due to black holes and other high-gravity fields play out in Star Trek? The answer is, in general, it doesn't. Star Trek rarely deals head-on with gravitational time dilation, which is a phenomenon codified in Einstein's laws of general relativity. Now, every once in a while, it's hinted at. As Dr. Aaron McDonald mentioned in the virtual TrekCon clip you just heard, Star Trek Voyager was perhaps the best at incorporating time dilation into its plot lines. She mentioned the Voyager episode Eye of the Needle, which has a wormhole that transmits messages not just over vast distances of space, but also across vast stretches of time. And the Voyager episode Blink of an Eye, which is one of my personal favorites and has a planet where time travels faster on its surface than it does in orbit. Now this is backwards from what Einstein's laws tell us which say that time travels slower the deeper you are within a gravity well. But everything is okay because this planet has a tachyon core. Tachyons have been discussed in real-world physics. They are hypothetical particles that travel faster than the speed of light, as opposed to literally every other particle that we know of in the universe, which travels slower than or exactly at the speed of light. So what does it mean for a planet to have a tachyon core? Well, as a card-carrying planetary scientist, my answer is somewhere between a shrug and an eye roll. But look, if you wanted to have some kind of wonky planet that flipped Einstein's laws of time distortion on its head, tachyons are probably not the worst choice in the world. Anyway, I think we're about to see a lot more space-time bending action as Dr. Aaron McDonald is now the full-time science advisor for the Star Trek universe, and her speciality is relativistic astrophysics, having earned her PhD as part of the LIGO project that detected the first gravitational waves. I encourage you to check out episode 80 of Strange New Worlds for a conversation between myself and Dr. McDonald to learn more. Our next question comes from Rosie Varela, a friend of mine whom I met at STLV. She asks, 
What are aspects of the Star Trek future you hope to see in your lifetime? <laughs> what a great question. So many is my answer, but instead of just listing all of them, let me pick one that seems appropriate for the times that we're living in. And to do that, let's rewind the clock back to 2016. Okay, 2016, right? It's the 50th anniversary of the Star Trek franchise, and my family is about to take a trip to STLV to celebrate it. We're deciding what to cosplay as. Now, it was easy for me. I was going to wear a gold TOS uniform for the 50th. My brother, whose name is Jonathan, wore Jonathan Archer's flight jacket from Enterprise. My sister, who's a fan of Jadzia Dax, was a DS9 science officer, and my dad made himself a five-star admiral. That's the highest rank in all of Starfleet. There's literally no bigger fish in the pond. So the only person who was left deciding was my mom. So when I asked her, hey mom, are you going to make yourself an engineer like you are in real life? She said, no. I'm going to be a medical officer. And I said, really? Why? And she said, because I want to be the only one who can declare your dad unfit for duty. <laughs> right? That's brilliant. So basically, that anecdote is to say this. I want a world where we trust our medical professionals I want a world where we trust experts in general to the extent that they can contradict those who are chosen to lead us and not fear retribution. I want a world where scientific and medical advice is heeded, where even a humble doctor can have the power to revoke the command of an officer, any officer who is no longer medically or psychologically qualified to lead. And yes, this is totally motivated by current events. Would Cisco wear a mask if Bashir said it was in the best interest of the health of the station? You bet he would. Next question. Laura No, who was my guest on episode 68, asks, How many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop? Well, if each lick dissolves about a tenth of a millimeter of a Tootsie Pop, and a Tootsie Pop is approximately one centimeter in radius, then I think it'll take approximately a hundred licks to get to its center. After googling, I found that this is consistent to an order of magnitude with actual lick tests that have been performed at numerous universities. But I wouldn't know. I always end up biting. And anyway, I prefer Jumja sticks. Justin Steinberg asks, What advice do you have for those who want to work toward a doctorate in any field? Well, Justin, this is such a wonderful question. You know, PhD programs are long. I took six years in grad school. Some people can finish in less time. Others need more. But either way, it's a marathon. You will feel literally every emotion there is to feel during the course of those six-ish years. Love, wonder, joy, but also disappointment, anger, and doubt. So my biggest advice is to surround yourself with good people. That support network is going to be key. 
Also, remember the importance of exercise and sleep. Your mind is part of your body. Don't neglect the rest of your body, which is the support network for your mind, or else your mind will suffer. And you're gonna work that brain of yours, and just like any other part of your body, you have to rest your brain after a hard day's work. Sleep. It works wonders. Celeste Labeds, the cryoseismologist extraordinaire who also appeared on Strange New Worlds in episode 48, asks, Which Star Trek character do you feel is most like you as a scientist, and which do you feel is most like you as a person? Well, (laughs) that is a really difficult question. Because I've liked Star Trek for most of my life, and I have changed a lot over the years. But during quarantine, I think that the Star Trek character that most reflects my state of being is probably Porthos, Captain Archer's beagle. Except I'm nowhere as cute as Porthos, of course. I mean, no one can compare. So to help me find the answer, the actual answer, to Celeste's question, I did the scientific thing. I consulted the internet. I took five Which Star Trek Character Am I quizzes online, and the results were Kirk, Picard, Kirk, Saru, Kirk. To recap, that's three Kirks, one Picard, and one Saru. So I guess I'm like, Kirk? I have a hard time believing that. But, you know, Kirk is one of those characters that is so well-known in pop culture that I think the perception of his persona, the caricature of Captain Kirk, overshadows who he actually is, even in my mind. I mean, when I think of Captain Kirk, and I think this is true of most people out there, the first thing that comes to mind is a guy who is brash, full of himself, and a womanizer. And I'd like to think that I am none of those things. Now, maybe that image of Kirk is amplified by the Kelvin timeline films, the recent reboot films that J.J. Abrams helmed. But, you know, if you go back to watch the original series and really study it, you see that Kirk is quite a compassionate captain. I'd argue that he actually cares more about his crew on a personal level than, say, Picard, who always seemed a bit aloof to me. Kirk is also very intelligent, although in that regard he's often overshadowed by his science officer, and Kirk has a strong moral compass, although that aspect of his persona is often overshadowed by his well-known exploit of the Kobayashi Maru test. So, I guess this is all to say that I'm not too disappointed to be like Kirk. As a scientist, I greatly admire Data from TNG for his childlike fascination with basically everything. He's trying to find his place in the universe, both through his exploration of the cosmos aboard the USS Enterprise-D and also through his exploration of humanity. And if I may extrapolate Data's quest to understand what it means to be human to my quest to understand what it means to be alive, and by extension, whether or not the universe contains other living beings, then I think his journey is actually very much like my own. 
Alex Phillips, a geochemist at Caltech and the founder of Women Doing Science, a collection of images and stories of women doing science which you should absolutely check out and follow on your social media platforms, asks, What is your favorite Star Trek episode or movie, and why is it The Voyage Home? <laughs> Yeah, Star Trek for The Voyage Home is one of my favorites. You know, I even made my 11th grade science class watch it on the bus ride on our field trip to the Monterey Bay Aquarium, where the Cetacean Institute scenes in Star Trek for The Voyage Home were filmed. You know, it's hard to say why I love this film so much, by which I mean, I know that I love whales, right? But I don't think that's the reason why I love Star Trek 4. I think Star Trek 4 is the reason why I love whales. Similarly, I'm an environmentalist, but I don't know whether that's more of a cause or an effect of me loving The Voyage Home. But here's perhaps the best reason to love Star Trek for The Voyage Home. Let's take a detour to Mars. Just a few days ago, on July 30th, 2020, NASA's Perseverance rover launched to the Red Planet. It's an astrobiology mission which excites me to no end, seeking signs of life from an ancient habitable environment known as Jezero Crater. Jezero was once a lake, as evinced by the rivers that run into and out of the crater, and by the detritus within the crater which shows aqueously altered minerals. If life once flourished on Mars, it's quite possible that fossilized evidence from billions of years ago is still trapped in Jezero's sediment. However, it's often really difficult to tell if a suspicious-looking piece of rock was once alive. It's likely that the Perseverance rover cannot find definitive evidence of Martian life all by itself— despite all of the fancy state-of-the-art instruments on board the rover. To actually figure out if a rock has signs of past life, we're going to need the full arsenal of analytical equipment in scientific labs here on Earth, such as the labs that Alex Phillips herself works in. So Perseverance's mission is not to actually make that definitive declaration that there was life on Mars, but to look for tantalizing samples of rock that may have life in it, or otherwise might teach us something fundamental about the history of the Red Planet, and then cache those samples for eventual return to Earth. In other words, perseverance is the first step in a Mars sample return saga that will involve at least two other missions, one to pick up the samples that perseverance cached, and another to bring them all the way back to Earth. Alright, so what does this have to do with Star Trek IV? Well, the Voyage Home is literally the Star Trek movie about sample return from an ancient aqueous environment. Except in this case, the samples are two humpback whales, the aqueous environment is the Pacific Ocean, and that ancient world is Earth, circa 1986. 
Brandon Shea Mutala, a fellow Trek podcaster and host of numerous shows on Trek FM and the United Federation of Podcasts, has a trio of questions for me. First, how do you feel about the current classification of Pluto? Well, to quote Spock in The Voyage Home, I feel fine. <laughs> um, second question. What is the most scientifically accurate movie that you've seen? Now, this is a tricky question, because I don't really evaluate movies along that axis, scientific accuracy. But I can safely say it's definitely not a Star Trek movie. Maybe it's The Martian. Maybe it's Interstellar. Uh, but here's the thing about scientific accuracy. When people ask me if scientific errors in movies make me go crazy? I say no. Because if you want to watch a totally scientifically accurate film, you should have put on a documentary. And Star Trek isn't even consistent within the rules of its fictional universe, so, so what am I supposed to do? Get mad at everything? What keeps me sane and happy is to appreciate the instances where sci-fi gets the science right or better yet, uses science to motivate the story. And I just chalk the rest up to the fiction department of science fiction. Brandon Shea also asks if you could visit one planet slash moon slash asteroid in our solar system, which would you choose? Look, I love all my planets, moons, and asteroids, but if I had to pick, I'd probably go with Saturn's moon Titan. I choose Titan because I have a personal connection to it. It was the first world that I studied during graduate school, but also because it's such a fascinating place. Very much like Earth in many respects, it has a thick nitrogen-dominated atmosphere, it has liquids, albeit liquid methane and ethane, running across its surface, raining out, carving valleys, forming lakes, and yet it's a little bit different. Like I said, the liquid is not water. Water instead forms the bedrock because Titan is so cold, and we have a methological cycle rather than a hydrological cycle causing erosion on the surface. In addition, you have all sorts of exciting chemistry in the atmosphere, but also on the surface. You can check out my episodes with Dr. Morgan Cable to learn more about the details of that. But essentially, Titan is exciting to me because it offers us the possibility of life or of just complex chemistry that is radically different from what we observe here on Earth due to the massive differences in terms of global parameters like temperature and the chemical constituents that coat the surface of Titan. So it would be really interesting for me to look for what kinds of processes are occurring on Titan's surface, processes that might resemble life, albeit made by different components. I'll have more to say on that theme in my next episode. So stay tuned for that, and thank you for your wonderful questions, Brandon Chamutala. Tyler Perez asks, How do you personally rate the probability of the existence of extraterrestrial life and intelligent life separately? Wow, that is a really good question. And I admire, first of all, the way that that question is phrased. How do you personally rate the probability? 
I can tell Tyler is a scientist himself, because usually the way this question is phrased by people in the general public is, do you believe that aliens exist? And that's not a scientific question. Aliens are not something to believe in or not. Just like climate change is not something to believe in, right? When I get asked, do you believe in climate change, I get really mad because that is not a scientific question. Science tells us that there is overwhelming evidence that our climate is being forced by anthropogenic activity. We have data and we have models to support that conclusion. The thing with alien life is that we do not yet have data to assess the probability of its existence. And yet, we can still try. And this was actually done in a very recent paper by Professor David Kipping from Columbia University. In this paper, he tries to assess the relative probabilities between the origin of life being relatively easy and quick to start versus relatively hard and improbable, and the same thing with intelligent life, whether the emergence of intelligence, once you already have simple life, is inevitable or very difficult and very rare. Now, this paper has a lot of statistics in it. It's title is An Objective Bayesian Analysis for Life's Early Start and Our Late Arrival. So it's got Bayesian statistics in it, which is not my field of expertise. So I'm going to punt on this one, but I'll promise that I will return to it, Tyler. I'm going to read this paper and try to understand as much as I can, and I'm also shooting an email to Professor David Kipping to come on board Strange New Worlds and actually have a discussion with me about how he did these calculations. And I think he'll say yes, because Professor Kipping actually approached me last summer at an Exoplanets conference to talk about science communication. In fact, he has a YouTube channel, and you all should definitely check that out. So stay tuned for that discussion. Our last question comes from Pushkar Kaparla, who was my guest on episode 34 of Strange New Worlds and a postdoctoral researcher soon moving to the University of Bern in Switzerland. He asks, Star Trek is about universal human values, but it is still an American show. How do you think it would look if Star Trek were made in Germany or China? Would the core of the show change according to the values of those places? Wow. What a fantastic question. I think I should just be honest and say I don't know, and I wish I could visit a parallel universe and find out. I've only lived in the United States. Pushkar himself, though, is a man of the world who's lived in India, Switzerland, Japan, and the USA. In Indian shows, Pushkar says, the social issues that they focus on are different. There's never any mention of racial issues, which is very visible in American shows, but there's a lot more focus on education, or the lack of it, and government corruption and apathy. And this makes sense, right? In America, especially in the America of the 60s, during the height of the civil rights movement, Star Trek really tried to emphasize that a future without racism could be possible. Whereas its statements about the universality of education and a wonderful working government were relatively implicit. 
So maybe an international version of Star Trek would feature a Starfleet Academy series. Or maybe there'd be a political drama focused on Federation Council members where politicians need to stamp out emergent corruption in the government. You know, bad actors who are trying to take advantage of the generous social system in the Federation. But bringing this whole thing full circle to virtual TrekCon, this question from Pushkar reminds me of something that Mary Wiseman, who plays Ensign Tilly on Star Trek Discovery, said at Virtual TrekCon. She said that she is especially proud of her version of Star Trek because it doesn't assume that the Federation's internal social issues are completely solved. Instead, it depicts an ongoing struggle. We see this, for example, in the conflict between crew members on the USS Discovery. I think that this marks a subtle but important shift in Star Trek. You see, the original series was very much like, okay, we solved racism, we solved inequality, we solved poverty and hunger and everything else, so now we go out there, together, to face even greater challenges. But when we rewatch TOS in 2020, we see tons of imperfections, right? Be it tinges of racism or misogyny, or that time that Bones called Tribbles bisexual because they are born pregnant and reproduce at will, which is not what bisexual means at all. Now, of course, we still laud the original series for having good intentions and being far ahead of its time because it was. But I think if you instead portray a struggle, well, a struggle is timeless. We will always be seeking a better future. We will always be fighting to point our vector of society towards greater inclusion, greater justice, fairer education, and less corrupt governments. So that story of struggle, that message, that Star Trek, will remain relevant in any time, in any place, to anyone. I think the DS9 episode, Far Beyond the Stars, is a perfect example of this. That episode was made in the mid-90s, but you rewatch it now in 2020, and you're like, wow, was that made for this moment? Well, that wraps up our Q&A. I want to say thank you to all of the people who submitted questions to me. I hope you... Oh, wait. Ah, another question just came in. It says, how did you enjoy episode one of Lower Decks? Ha! <laughs> I loved it. I can't wait for more. Laugh long and prosper, everyone. I'll see you out there.